are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Near Dark, which came out in 1987. It was directed by Catherine Bigelow. It stars Adrian Pastar, Jenny Wright, Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, Tim Thomerson, Joshua John Miller, Marcy Leeds, and Bill Paxton. The genre would be Vampire Horror Western. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for a bus to get home. You help me out? What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Near dark. Pray for daylight. The night has its price. It's easy to forget that once upon a time, Oscar-winning director Catherine Bigelow made silly movies, even before Point Break. And it's debatable as to whether you think that movie's silly. How does that sit in your stomach, huh? Take your hands off me right now. And I don't mean silly as in bad. Just the serious stuff that we have seen from her over the past decade, like Detroit and Zero Dark Thirty, which she is now known for. Great films, but often devoid of humor and silliness. Well, that's not the case here, as this is one goofy-ass 80s vampire western which wears its silliness on its sleeve, and is better for it. Not all the acting, nor the effects work, is tip-top, but it all works towards telling an often creepy, funny, and even sometimes romantic story of an Oklahoma farmer boy, Caleb, played by Adrian Pastar, who meets a mysterious girl, May, played by Jenny Wright, from out of town. They have an instant connection, and that connection gets more intense than he could have ever imagined. That girl is a vampire, of course, and after laying a love bite on him, she, quote, turns him. She belongs to a roving gang of down-home vampires played mostly by the supporting cast of Aliens, which came out a year prior, and they share a producer. Seriously, you have Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein here. What, they couldn't find a part from Michael Bean? Yeah, right, man. Bishop should go. Good idea. Believe me, I'd prefer not to. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. The gang is led by Jesse, played by Henriksen, who is just so much fun to watch as a weathered, multiple facial scarred, undead patriarch who, when asked how old he is, responds drolly, well, let's put it this way, I fought for the South. We lost. Needless to say, Caleb tries to prove himself to the gang and for May, who he falls in love with. Sure, I've met many girls like you. Yeah, you haven't met any girls like me. See that one? First one I laid my eyes on. And the light that's leaving that star right now will take a billion years to get down here. You want to know why you've never met a girl like me before? Yeah, why? Because I'll still be here when the light from that star gets down here to Earth. It's in a billion years. 
but he's torn between his new allegiance to them and his actual family, which is searching for him. Now, if this sounds vaguely like The Lost Boys, which actually came out the same year, well, it is, but it isn't. Stylistically, you could not find two more different films, as Joel Schumacher directed that film, which has its charms, but I don't think it's held up as well. He directed that film like a glossy SoCal goth music video. Initiation's over, Michael. It's time to join the club. (laughs) Whereas Bigelow presents this story as a gritty Western. And I think I prefer the latter. Pazdar has never been a particularly good actor as far as I'm concerned. He just had that vapid 80s pretty boy feel about him, as if he was a poor man's Charlie Sheen, or the guy you hired when Billy Zane wasn't available. Fortunately, Bigelow plays the story to his strengths. Caleb is clearly in over his head, and that's conveyed best with scared and curious looks, with help from a synth score from Tangerine Dream playing, as opposed to actually us watching his character verbalize what he's thinking. Paxton and Goldstein are also fun to watch as they really ham it up. Let me do it, Jesse. Let me tap dance on it, won't you? It'll be so good. Do it, fast. All right. Good times roll. And Jenny Wright is also pretty strong, playing a younger, less experienced vampire whose allegiances always seem to be shifting. It's to her credit that she brings as much depth to this role as she can, despite a screenplay which never really bothers to explain what really drives her character. As a movie, Near Dark truly works because it does a great job of showing as opposed to telling. And now the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Whereas The Lost Boys had very much a soundtrack of the time filled with catchy pop tunes from Michael Hutchins and that sexy sax guy, this film is scored by Tangerine Dream. And while that actually might sound just as dated, it helps give the film a cerebral vibe that just works for me. And if you've listened to previous episodes featuring their music, as for Thief, Three O'Clock High, and Sorcerer, you know how much I love Tangerine Dream. Their music is sufficiently electronic-based and moody, keeping a nice tone throughout. That said, there is one obvious 80s pop song used very effectively for a standout sequence. And this sequence is likely the most well-known one for this movie, the one which most cinephiles-slash-fanboys will cite. And it's a very good one. The vampire gang has brought their new recruit, Caleb, to a local dive bar. Not only to get a drink, mind you, well, likely to drink something besides alcohol, if you know what I mean. Once we get there, standing at the bar and immediately stirring up trouble is Severin, played by the late, great Bill Paxton. Of all the vampires that we meet in this movie, his is clearly having the best time being one. And we see that pretty clearly here as he is just strutting around the bar with his cowboy spurs jangling, poking fun at the bartender, and even bogarting some other patron's drink. Oh, bartender, that'll be a double shot of your very best watered-down shit right here. There are two ways to leave these here friends. Is that? That's a fact. On your feet or on your back. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty tough words for a bartender, huh? Gee whiz, if you're not going to serve me a drink, well... I'll just have to drink his. 
And of course, things start to get bloody as Severin just cannot help himself. Over this sequence, we hear a rock synth song by pop star John Parr called Naughty Naughty. (laughs) Yeah. Which just sounds uncharacteristically lively for this generally moody film. And yet it works in this case quite well, obviously, as Severin is in fact acting quite naughty. The song is just pure 80s catchy cheese, complete with an easily hummable chorus. And now the next category, which is wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Lance Henriksen has gradually become one of my favorite character actors, as he has been a true genre staple going back decades. He pretty much started in the 70s with some featured appearances in a couple of big movies. Two of my favorites, no less. Dog Day Afternoon and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he just has such a distinctive, angular face with those mysterious eyes and generally eerie, calm demeanor. You just can't miss him. You can't miss him in movies from The Terminator to previous episode Aliens, of course, to the X-Files spinoff Millennium, to the underrated Western The Quick and the Dead. Believe it or not, this guy has acted in more than 250 movies and shows. Just a crazy impressive IMDb. And yet, I think he is at his absolute best when he's playing villains. That's when he gets truly ramped up, and it's a joy to watch. I recently watched two action films from the early 90s that both featured him as the villain. Hard Target starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Stone Cold starring Brian Bosworth. Yeah, I know what you're thinking about Stone Cold, but trust me, that movie is a blast. It's much better than you would think. You tried to out-party him. He's leaving the ozone. You tried to out-ride him. You crash your bird. In those movies, Henriksen just always brings the heat. He just goes all out with the facial hair, the costume, the throwaway lines. Henriksen is just such a presence as he often steals those movies from their leads. And that's certainly the case here as he commands the screen as Jesse Hooker, the lead vampire who has clearly been around since before the American Civil War. And yet I would have liked a bit more of him. It's tough because Paxton is also killing it. Literally, there's just only so much screen time to go around with all these villains. I just would have loved to have spent a bit more time, learned a bit more about his backstory and all the history he's witnessed. Maybe one monologue scene would have sufficed. Alas, Bigelow keeps this film to a tight 94 minutes, and I get why. Films like this should not wear out their welcome. The more you overstretch them, the more you overexplain characters, the less effective they become. So I really can't fault the director for limiting this character's screen time in service of a better movie. But still, you could just never have enough Lance Henriksen when he's playing for the opposing team. What you people want? Just a couple more minutes of your time, about the same duration as the rest of your life. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. For me, the highlight is a tense standoff, which occurs around 60% of the way through the movie. The difference being, it's daytime. Which, as you might imagine, is a very treacherous situation for fully turned vampires. They're allergic to sunlight. Caleb and the rest of them are now holed up in a rented mini-home in the middle of nowhere when suddenly they are besieged by state troopers with shotguns, resulting in, of course, a shootout. Check out time.
and our gang is holding their own. Problem being that they have nowhere to go, and anytime shots are fired in their direction into the house, those shots result in holes, which results in sunlight coming in, which burns them. So they're not only taking fire, but they're also taking literal fire as we start to see flames go up on each person as the sun blasts in on them. It's getting dangerous. At this point, Caleb is turning into a vampire, but is not yet fully turned, so he can withstand some sunlight. So to earn their trust, he takes it upon himself to go out there, covered with a large blanket, to run out to their van with blacked out windows, to rescue them. And while running out there, not only do we see parts of his arms starting to go up in flames as the sunlight creeps in, but we also see him getting plugged at least three times in the leg and the back from a trooper who has the drop on him nearby. By the time Caleb gets to the van, he is looking pretty charred and is pretty damaged, but he starts the van and then pulls up right into the mini home to rescue the rest of the gang regardless. They get out of there and everyone else cheers him for pulling it off. It's probably the most triumphant moment in the movie, while also being pretty gnarly for what we see his character endure. And it's just a very effective action sequence with convincing squib work and piercing sound design. And of course, this scene demonstrates just how much it must suck to try to be a vampire, to try to survive as a vampire. There's obviously a wealth gap. I mean, if you're going to be a roving vampire to live a long life, you need to be independently wealthy. You need to have a home with crypts and things that are blacked out where you could settle for long periods of time. Because if you don't have that regular income coming in or if you don't have that independent wealth, you're just not going to survive. You're going to always run into situations like this. Just another reminder that we as a society can always be doing a lot more to help the less privileged vampires out there to get back up on their feet. And now the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Catherine Bigelow also wrote this film, and despite some flaws, it's nicely structured, and she also directs all the action and or kill sequences with a certain flair, despite some obvious budgetary constraints. There's sufficient blood and gore to have the desired effect, but it's rarely over the top. And I really like how she keeps this world so grounded. We're never really presented with some bigger, overarching plan for the vampires. They're just pretty much surviving once we get to know them. The life of a vampire is pretty much deglamorized here as well. And while we don't always have sympathy for those hunters of the night, we don't particularly envy them either. Especially Homer, played by Joshua John Miller. He's a preteen vampire. Well, at least he still looks like a preteen. Though unfortunately, Homer is likely much older now, feeling trapped in the body of a young boy. We only get a few moments solely devoted to this character, but we feel his pathos regardless. He's eager for companionship which looks like his age. And we see this play out in one late scene where he brings a young girl into their hotel room. He just wants to watch TV with her. Well, you people should stay up late. We keep odd hours. Sarah, you here with your family? Just my daddy. And what room are you staying in, honey? Uh, number three. There'll be something really nice. There'll be something, wait. And it's especially frustrating as it's really late with nothing on. Such is the frustrating life of someone who can only live nocturnally. It's actually quite an affecting moment, which Bigelow just allows to play out. Considering the limited budget, she just gets the most bang out of her buck, even including the truck climax, which does feature a pretty impressive explosion for the time. For successfully directing what might be the best vampire movie of the 1980s, Catherine Bigelow is your MVP. My rating for Near Dark 
would be four and a quarter stars out of five. I really enjoyed this. And it cements my assertion that the 80s, not the 90s, nor the Twilight-dominated early 2000s were a peak time for vampire movies. With this movie, The Hunger, and Fright Night, you really had some talented filmmakers cutting loose during the 80s with vampire lore, crossing genres, and directing them with a style that clearly fit best during that decade. If you're looking to watch Near Dark, it's currently streaming on the Criterion channel. And that ends another Nocturnal Review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.